previously on Relative Fiction. Yeah, and your birthday was coming up, and I was like, oh, I know what would be fun. I was, it was like a two-for-one deal for palm reading. The man you think is your father might be dead. I'm Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Nicole, welcome to the program. But your real father is very much alive. I just remember Fahan had a lot of fancy cars, Cadillacs, lots of cash. Okay, you suffered enough. Go have Christmas. It is a really funny, like, catalyst. Basically answering an ad in the back of the paper that I altered the course of your life. (laughs) We have changed some names to protect people's privacy. But all of these stories are true. Dr. Laura's advice and went home for Christmas. I didn't bring up my dad. Neither did my mom. It had taken a long time for my mom to build stability. It felt wrong to topple that over. I was also tired of upheavals. Growing up, we had moved constantly. Here's my sister, Megan. I I think I've counted, I think I've moved 13 times. I think I went to nine different schools until I graduated from high school. So when I went back home that Christmas, My father stayed dead, and we continued the lie. For the sake of this idea of home. And this idea of home was located in a nice suburb outside of Kansas City. It's where I went to high school. My sisters never got to live in this house. Liz left for college when I was six, and Megan when I was eight. So it was just me, my mom, and my second stepfather. I only keep in touch with one person outside of my family from that time. My name is Rachel Bernard, and I have known Nicole since high school. I've been friends with Rachel ever since I was 15. So we met at the Daily Grind, and you were selling zines at the show at a merch table. But I was like, oh, cool. Because then the next year you were in school. From a relatively young age, Rachel has had a finely tuned BS detector, one that I trusted. I was like the fat kid who was really bullied that I'm like, I'm not gonna succeed in mainstream, but I don't know that I want to. These people kind of seem like they suck. We bonded over punk shows and feeling like outcasts, but we had some other things in common. Like I was the youngest of three. I'm the youngest of three. And most importantly, we were both part of the Dead Dads Club. So my father died when I was eight years old. And as far as I knew, my father had died of colon cancer when I was a baby. Here's Rachel again. Part of kind of what shaped my childhood experience was that I found it challenging to relate to other kids and adults and other kids and adults found it challenging to relate to me. It's just a little bit like sadness being a contagion. Oh, I don't want to hang out with you. I definitely remember having that feeling of like, this is a life experience I don't want to catch. And so a lot of the people I gravitated towards or either were the youngest of divorced parents or were, I think, what I called the Dead Dads Club. Both Rachel and I had been isolated in our grief. We found solace in each other within our loss and the forced maturity that came out of it. Rachel, at only 16, took a look at my mom, heard her story, and said, nah, I'm not buying it. 
Too many plot holes. My experience with Nicole's mom was that she seemed a lot more like my friends with divorced single moms than she did necessarily a widow. One incident in particular she remembers as the first significant crack in the veneer. So we received Social Security death benefits after my dad had died. And for a long time, that was the primary source of income while my mom was getting it together and going to nursing school and trying to launch a career. So there was a conversation that we had had, my brother and I, that Nicole had been part of. And then her ears perked up and she's like, what, what, what about survivor benefits? And I'm like, oh yeah, like, you know, if your father was employed and had been paying into social security, then you're entitled to survivor benefits. And then I think I had I think it was that same day that after school, I had gone over to your house and hung out. And when your mom came home, we were in the kitchen and you had said, Rachel, tell my mom about Social Security. I I think as a teen, I didn't realize it was just something everybody knew about. And I'm like, let me tell you about this new thing called Social Security. And like, I was, I don't know, opening her up to new financial, like money making opportunities at a, like as a 15, 16 year old. Rachel was, of course, just trying to help. But her financial advice was not received as enthusiastically as she expected by my mother. And I remember her then kind of looking at Nicole and brushing it off and just being like, oh, I don't know about that. I'll have to look into it and kind of being a little bit more like light and airy. I've been kind of thinking about it because I do remember the interaction and I remember it being very weird. And I remember Nicole's mom giving me a look directly about like, this is a no-go area. Like, please don't. We all know that look. Adults have been giving meddling children that look since eyes were invented. And Rachel at that moment knew her suspicions were correct. Something was up. I thought it was weird at the time, but I had constructed one of two kind of backstories to maybe explain it. And neither one was that Nicole's dad wasn't dead (laughs) because who, who could construct that? So what were the theories Rachel had come up with? So on one hand, I thought, okay, Nicole's mom is either like thinks that this is an entitlement and thinks my mom's a welfare queen. And out of loyalty to my mom, I'm just like not going to go down that road. Or I was like, Nicole's dad's a deadbeat and never had a job. And Nicole's mom is trying to kind of protect his memory. So those were kind of like the two things that I had constructed. And I'm like, okay, those two reasons seemed really valid. But Rachel is being coy here because those weren't the only theories for my mother's unwidow-like behavior that were floating around. As my producer dug out during our conversation, But looking back, I'm surprised my mom didn't have you killed or thrown off a bridge or something. Like you sniffing around being like, she seems more like a divorced mom or someone who killed her husband. Like she doesn't seem like... (laughs) Killed her husband. (laughs) Did you actually think that, Rachel? Um, no. Well, it wasn't necessarily me, but it was my mom when I would... Because my mom is Southern and kind of nosy. Not nosy, but like my mom is interested in people in a way that like people in the Midwest are not. And my mom would always have a lot of questions about Nicole's mom. And each of the times 
when I didn't have a sufficient answer or she had follow-up questions that I couldn't answer, she would always go, huh, okay. It seems the Bernard BS detector was hereditary. As much as Rachel and I were part of the Dead Dads Club, Rachel's mother was part of the Dead Husbands Club, and she didn't see any card-carrying member qualities in my mother. And the lie they suspected wasn't that my father was alive. It was that my mother had killed him. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, I'm Nicole J. Georges, and you're listening to Relative Fiction. If you tell a lie enough, right, it becomes the truth, and that's the only thing you know. This is terrible of me, but because of his history, the first thing I thought was, does he have another family? And I always told them, I said, someday that girl with the eyes like yours is going to knock on the door. You're going to get really different stories from different people. There's not going to be a central story in some ways, and that's the story. Like, how could all these things happen to us growing up, and no one noticed? It made me really question, did all of this happen the way I remember it? With the help of my producer, Claudia Meza, we'll be delving into the heart of one of the most nebulous mysteries of the universe, family. Chapter two, The Dead Dad's Club. When my father left or was kicked out of our lives, this still remains unclear. Our mother immediately had a new plan and no rear view mirror. There was no middle ground with our mom. If you crossed her, you were dead to her. Quite literally, it seems. Our apartment looked like it had been broken into, kind of like ransacked. As my sister Megan pointed out, our mom's pack it up and shut it down approach to most problems meant we didn't stay put for long. But there was one address change among the many that my sisters and I are still trying to piece together. And it's the one that birthed the lie. This was back when I was a baby, still living in Ohio with my mom and dad and two half-sisters. Megan was just about to start middle school. Every summer, she and Liz would go live with their father and his new wife in California. Here's Megan again. They were moving overseas and the cat was too old to take, so we took the cat. So we had a cat with us, too, that we had gotten from our dad's house. My sisters and Prissy the cat got picked up at the airport by our mom and Cricket, her best friend since high school in a gigantic van. And I remember it had little mini blinds on the windows. They were confused as to why Cricket was the one picking them up and not my dad. They remained quiet in the back of the van, clutching Prissy and their luggage as they were driven in darkness to what used to be their home. That's when everything bad happened, when we came back. Because David was gone. My father, David, had been their stepfather for four formative years starting when they were both in elementary school. And now, seemingly overnight, he was just not there anymore. My sisters didn't even have time to absorb this information. Here's Megan again. He was just gone, no questions asked. Basically, we gathered our stuff because we were moving. The electricity had already been shut off, and their pet parakeet, who was alive when they left, was now dead in the bottom of its cage. The apartment was real, like, in shambles. It was really weird. And the thing we were most upset about is our Mickey Mouse phone had been stolen by someone. It seems insignificant, but that phone was their most prized possession. Its loss might have rivaled the death of their parakeet. These were things they could mourn out loud. But mentioning David was out of the question. Our mom still won't talk about the events that led us to this hurried move, 
or how our apartment came to look like a crime scene. According to Megan, That's about all the details we have. My mom, forever moving forward, gave a breathless synopsis of what would happen next. She said, We're moving to D.C. with Fahan. He and I are working together at the Watergate buildings. We're going to have a great life there. David's gone. But we didn't go straight to D.C. Our mom first left Megan and Liz at our grandparents' house for another month. I know that at one point my aunt had threatened to call, like, social services on my mom because it was like she just left. She had left baby me with her sister. Meanwhile, our mother is... A wall. We have the cat hiding in the bedroom that Grandpa doesn't know about because he hates pets in the house. And it was stressful. I was only two and a half when this happened. I'm foggy on the details, but I figured this is when my mom must have brought up the idea of colon cancer and deliberated with my sisters about what to tell me. But as it turns out, things were much more flip. Here's Megan again. Shortly into eighth grade, my counselor called me into their office and my counselor started asking me about if I wanted to join. They have like a special group for grief and for people that have lost their parents. And I was very confused. Megan remembered thinking, what the heck is this person talking about? But they wanted me to attend these grief sessions because my mom had told them that my stepdad had died. My father remained alive up until a few months after we moved to D.C. You might think my sister would be in shock, crushed to hear that a person so present in her life had passed. I asked Megan. Was your first thought that David had just died or that mom had made up a story? It was was not that David died. (laughs) I remember being like, oh my gosh, I don't want to get my mom in trouble. And so I have to play along. In one narrative left turn, Megan had to renounce both her stepdad and her ties to reality, all in order to protect our mother. I was like, this is one of my mom's bullshit lies that I have to cover for, because you never went against what she said. Don't ever take sides against the family. So I remember just being like, oh, no. No, I'm fine. We weren't really that close. You're like, well, are you, are you sure? You know, because there's lots of, you know, we can help you. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You know, and just sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe this. That was when it started. That was the lie. That was the beginning of it. That was now the story. We had a strict family policy about keeping your trap shut. It was always made very clear to us by our mother that we were loyal to her. There were many reasons for this. And like most families, a lot of those reasons were shame-based. But with ours, we sincerely thought we were keeping ourselves safe and out of trouble. And I'm convinced it's why this deception survived in our family for as long as it did. But as the lie of my father being dead stuck around, its purpose evolved and mutated for survival. I remember kind of jokingly saying, it would have been nice for you to tell us. She laughed it off, you know, like, oh, sorry, I forgot I mentioned it. And, you know, it was very not much thought put into the 
decision to say that. Apparently, she thought it seemed like it made a lot more sense to just tell people he died instead of saying she got divorced. Well, at first, that was the motivation behind it. But then... And then it was about, I don't ever want Nicole to feel like her father didn't love her and didn't care for her. And so this is just an easier thing to do. Now, my father had abandoned me, disappeared without a trace, and it was best I didn't know about it. But it didn't even end there. Eventually, it became that... We don't want him to come take Nicole. It was like there was a weird theory that maybe he would come kidnap her. So the father that left and wanted nothing to do with me might still return to snatch me away. Who knows? My sisters were too young at the time to catch the shape-shifting of the lie. All they knew was that they were committed to keeping me safe. And pretty soon, my father's death became our shared reality, a story that even Megan, my most trusted narrator, remained faithful to for over 20 years. But with distance, the normalcy of the ruse began to unravel for her. In college and broken free from the pack, she began to grapple with the immensity of what had been done. And she came very close to telling me. I would have still been in grade school. Um, even my stepmom advised me, because I talked to her in my 20s, about how horrible I felt about everything and that I just wanted Nicole to know. And I remember her saying, basically, I would cause more emotional harm than good at this point in her life. And so when she told me that, and then my mom had, you know, my whole life been like, no, we're not going to tell her, make her feel abandoned and you know horrible. Then I was like, well, okay, I'm not going to tell her then because I don't want to ruin her life. I'm just going to lay low with it until she comes to me and asks me. But I never asked because I was a dutiful member of the Dead Dads Club. Being a semi-orphan did give me a connection point with people like my high school friend, Rachel. Even though I came to the table with a fistful of secrets and childhood experiences I wasn't allowed to say, I was able to bond with her over this visible one. So it would seem on one hand that the secret hadn't hurt me, but it did take a toll on our family. There was that ever-present tension between my mom and everyone who knew. There was the sense I had all those years that there was something wrong with me that everyone else knew but didn't say. And also, the unfair and lasting guilt both my sisters still carry to this day. But there's another way this could have gone. In my friend Rachel's family, they banded together over shared struggles and unpleasant truths. Like the emotional entanglement that I think I had with my family and my mom in particular is that it's all of the grieving and all of the sadness and then all of the um, resentment of like the life that you thought you were supposed to have. A little bit of that Great Expectations, Miss Havisham or Great Gardens situation where we were still in the same house, but things were falling apart inside the house a little bit. It's just a very messy and emotional dynamic and it all kind of gets thrown into this stew. The emotional messiness and it brings you really much closer together. By the time Rachel met us, my mom was living an entirely new life as a stay-at-home mom. She spent her time cooking linguine and clam sauce while listening to the Godfather soundtrack for her first-generation Italian husband, my current stepfather. 
They practiced Catholicism and wondered why I wasn't more grateful for their suburban fantasy. Here's Rachel again. With Nicole and her mom, I didn't sense any of that. It felt like very compartmentalized and actually like physically very compartmentalized in the house. I lived alone on the first floor in a space that was later converted into a laundry room. In a way, my mother kept her story straight by physically separating her old life from her new one. It almost seemed like they were more like roommates and the loyalty in the center of gravity was very much with Nicole's mom and her stepdad. And the way she was always kind of trying to impress Nicole's stepdad was like very clear that she was adapting to his way of life or almost kind of like trying to put a polish on her and Nicole. Rachel couldn't imagine anyone coming in and taking up that much space or importance in her own family. If somebody new came into our lives, like we would be hazing them and they would definitely be seen as an interloper. My mom would be the first one that would be kind of part of that process of like, this is the unit and you're coming into it. And I saw like none of that. There was the upstairs and her mom being very much kind of loyal in the universe revolving around her relationship with Nicole's stepdad. And then Nicole kind of like off in her own universe in the basement. I want to clarify that I wasn't locked away in some basement. It was a ground floor. My mom did try her best. But I reached a point as a kid where even though I couldn't articulate it, I was no longer buying whatever my mother was selling. Even when all she was trying to offer me was her love and attention. Here's Rachel again. One time, Nicole's mom brought her back a bagel and Nicole had just gone vegan and she had gone to this effort and of making a special order and the order was wrong. And Nicole was just like, fuck you, mom. This is not the right order. Thank you for the bagel, but no thank you. In a way that I was like, I would never do this with my mom ever, ever. Like you just kind of take what you get. And like this woman is spread so thin. So like appreciate the gesture. Nicole's mom very much seemed to always kind of be wanting to make punk points with Nicole. Like she would definitely make references about food, not bombs or like Nicole zine in a way that my mom would just not have the attention span. So Nicole's mom always seemed to kind of like be engaged in the choreography of momming and parenting and uh, trying to impress Nicole. But was I impressed? Never. (laughs) Absolutely not. Rachel didn't know about the tension that had been brewing between my mother and I. All Rachel saw was a Naomi Campbell meltdown over a bad bagel order. I didn't want a perfect bagel. I wanted to be a priority to my mom. I wouldn't be able to share these things with Rachel or anyone else for years. Coming up after the break. I just reconnected with a high school best friend from junior year. And the first thing she said to me was, she said, how's your little sister, Nicole? I remember she didn't have any teeth. Welcome back to Relative Fiction. The insidiousness of a lie is that it can ferment and become stronger for survival. It changes the person telling it, 
and it changes the situation and the people around it. My mother created the lie of my father being dead to help keep me out of harm's way emotionally, to keep me closer to her. But it ended up creating an invisible rift between us, making me feel even more alone and isolated from my family. So did this lie really end up keeping me safe? That's questionable. It seemed like it always would get worse when we would leave her, when we would come back after our visit, you know, because she just was kind of being passed around while my mom was working full time. And I remember just feeling horrible that we were gone and she was there. After that summer of the ransacked apartment and dead parakeet, when my dad disappeared, Megan began feeling guilty about visiting her father during her summer break and leaving me behind. Before we left to go to California, Nicole was potty trained. And then when we came back, there were bathroom issues. And then, you know, those bathroom issues continued her whole life. Um, But that's when they started. It was that summer. I was a tiny kid trying to navigate an ever-shifting environment with control over nothing except the inside of my own body. Um, She used to have to go to the emergency room quite often through elementary school because she had so many bowel issues. She had to go get like, I I don't even know what it's called, extractions. I developed encopresis, a condition in which a child resists having bowel movements. It was painful and disruptive. I visited a lot of doctors, most of whom we never saw twice, which meant it lasted for years. Years of hiding dirty underwear, suffering through home enemas, and keeping yet another secret from the world. The encopresis mysteriously went away once I got some autonomy by learning to drive. Or, if you ask my mom, I was healed after she had a miracle priest pray for me. I survived this childhood humiliation by learning to become invisible. I slunk into class hours late and soiled, trying to make myself as small as possible. I faded into the wallpaper when my mom got into screaming matches with my stepdads or with my sisters. And I melted into the floor during her confrontations with the clerks at department stores when they cut her credit cards in half. My mother's moods and perceptions of who the enemy was had rapid tempo shifts. My diary became a grounding internal metronome. I've kept a diary since I was five years old. It's sometimes the only place where my experience has been reflected back to me. When I left home, my mom threw these diaries away. It felt like my mom and I were living in two different realities. I asked my mom to be a part of this podcast and she declined. She didn't want to go back to that time, she said. And she made it clear that she also didn't entirely trust my version of the story. These are Nicole's memories, and memories, she said, have their own imagination. But I trust my memories. And like I've mentioned, I also trust my sister Megan. Like my diaries, she's always been an anchor to reality. She's also been a guardian. My sister Megan was only 13 the first time she saved my life. I was mopping the kitchen floor, and it, you know, we had a candle burning in the kitchen on the counter. Mm-hmm. You know, you were probably three or something, and you leaned your head through the kitchen window. It was one of those pass-through windows, mm-hmm. and your hair caught on the candle. 
And I just remember I have never seen something go up in smoke so fast. I, I to this day, freak out when my kid is around candles. Really? Mm-hmm. So what did you do? I just dropped the mop and ran around the corner and grabbed you and started smacking your face, like kind of to, to get the hair out, and then stuck your head under the sink and started running water on your hair, and that smell of burning hair oh was God. horrible. For my it was toddler. very traumatic. Because I was, you know, I took care of you. Megan didn't just take care of me when our mom was at work. She also took care of me when our mom was at home. I was kind of the parental figure scolding my child that wasn't taking care of her child. My sister became a teen mom, and she tried her 13-year-old best to make me feel safe. My mom thought Megan was a total drag. It was always, you know, oh, relax. Oh, you're too uptight. Oh, she's fine. Oh, you're worrying for nothing. She would actually call my sister boring to her face for suggesting that maybe I have a regular bedtime and not eat an entire pile of candy in one sitting. I just reconnected with a high school best friend from junior year. And the first thing she said to me was, she said, how's your little sister, Nicole? I remember she didn't have any teeth. That's because... By the time I was nearing my third birthday, all my teeth had rotted out of my head. She just kind of got to do whatever she wanted. She didn't have to go to bed. I mean, if she didn't feel like going to school, well, she didn't have to. She didn't have to do her homework. I remember I would punish her, but no one else would. Megan walked me to school, put me to bed, helped me with my homework, and made sure I brushed my teeth. You know, we would go to the zoo and go to museums, um, walk around, I would pack lunches. You know, she was like my little kid. The bond I had with my sister never quite transferred over to my mother. So when Megan left, I was pretty much on my own, emotionally speaking. And that's the situation my friend Rachel and her mother sniffed out but couldn't quite piece together. To the outside world, I had the kind of mom all my friends wished they could have because she tried really hard to be super cool. She would let me do anything I wanted, would buy me whatever food I wanted, drove me wherever. If she could make my life a little more fun, she would. So I got a lot of the things I wanted, but I didn't get what I actually, on a core level, needed. And it was a strange contradiction, feeling loved, but not feeling safe. Here's Megan again. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the things that's, that's really confusing still. We didn't have a verbally neglectful parent. You always felt really loved. You always felt anything you needed or wanted and asked for, she would figure out a way to make it happen for you. I grew up thinking that anything I wanted to do in my life, I could do because she gave me that much confidence. That thing of never telling us that we couldn't do something, it's huge. It's why I started making a zine when I was 14 years old. It was my mom driving me to Kinko's. It was my mom going out of her way to mail out hundreds of letters for me at the post office. And it's still hard to reconcile all these versions of my mother. How do you wrap your head around it. I mean, it wasn't a a detached parent. It wasn't some strict parent. She was doing all this other stuff. And plus, we also were very 
tight-lipped with my dad and my stepmom about what was really going on in our house, basically lying about everything. They had supposedly no idea what we were really enduring. Snitches get stitches. Or one-star Amazon reviews of their life's work. I remember giving a copy of my book to my friend Rachel, being able to finally tell her all the things I never shared with her, the only way I really knew how. Uh, Yeah, she had given me a copy. I remember feeling really validated in a sense that, like, I think she really captured what I had felt. Like, am I being accurate? Am I making the right observations? Is the, am I actually catching on? I also just remember feeling just incredibly sad, especially in the flashbacks of her childhood and, and wanting to give, like, little Nicole a hug. Telling the truth, or your version of it anyways, can be very freeing. Here's my sister, Megan. So when I was in my 20s, it was still like, protect your family. Don't tell anyone the truth. And I remember telling my ex-husband's mother the truth and feeling free because I almost felt a little bit crazy. Like, how could all these things happen to us growing up? And no one noticed. You know, all these adults around us, you know, my dad, these aunts, these uncles, no one questioned how freaking crazy all of these choices were, all of these decisions were, no one stepped forward. And so it made me really question, did all of this happen the way I remember it? Do you have that same feeling of having to kind of like figure out how to regard yourself after being reflected back by like mom's impression of you? Yeah, because she always made me feel like I was this major buzzkill. I know my sister knows this, but I just want to reiterate, Megan was not a buzzkill. Maybe the roles we played in our family weren't actually who we necessarily were, but who we needed to be to survive. In a way, we were ourselves just little lies, trying to stay true in the moment. Like, those qualities that she had to grow in reaction to our upbringing, they probably saved our actual lives. Who knows how many teeth or organs I would even have now without her? I really just wish she also had the chance to be a kid. Here's Megan. You know, the way I live my life has so many boundaries and restrictions and restraints and order to it. When someone's close to me and I tell them what really happened, it's that's freeing to me because because they need to really know who I am. My book was my way of breaking out of the isolation of my diaries and sharing my experiences with the outside world. But what I didn't expect was for this book to become the hard evidence my sisters and my friends also needed to verify their own experiences. Here's my sister, Megan, again. I read the book and I immediately had one of my best friends read the book. She called me and she said, oh my gosh, this is everything that you told me. It's all there. There it is. This is the way it happened. And, you know, and still to this day, my mom will be like, well, that's Nicole's story. And 
you know, and I'll say, that story is the way I remember it too. You know, the way she told that is my memory as well. It made me feel validated, I think. And then I made my father read the story. I told my father about it. He and my stepmom read the story and they were both shocked. They were both heartbroken. But how hard were they looking at us? My older sister and I were very good at masking things. I'll agree with that because we were, you know, schooled by the master. But surely, wouldn't they have thought something was going on? You know, I, I still question that, you know. As an adult, I now see this was a team effort. There were a lot of grown-ups looking the other way during our childhoods. But I still often get asked why I continue to allow my mother in my life. And my response is simple. I don't want to choose to orphan myself. I already grew up feeling that loss. I've been a member of the Dead Dads Club. I don't need membership in the theoretically dead moms club too. When someone close to you has hurt you, what do you do with your memories of all the times they showed you love? All the times my mother and I shared jokes or hugs or even vegan bagels, those are still a part of me. There's a saying in therapy, don't go to the hardware store to buy milk. It took me years to accept what my mom does have to give. She just wants to give me as much love and support as she can. But as soon as the palm reader told me that my father was alive, I knew that my mom wasn't going to be able to comfort me around this issue. She had spent decades lying to me. She wasn't going to give it up that easily. I finally told my mom what I knew a couple months after that call to Dr. Laura. She said she'd only lied to me because my father had abandoned me. She didn't want me to feel that, abandoned. She wanted to be the hero of our story. And yet, I did feel abandoned, and I didn't believe her. I would have to go looking for my father on my own. I was ready for whatever he had to offer. In the next episode, I find my dad. I do remember that he hired a private investigator to try and find you, but they changed your name. Relative Fiction is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting. It's hosted by me, Nicole J. Georges, and written and produced by Claudia Meza and myself. Sage Van Wing is our executive producer. All original music by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Sound design and audio editing by Claudia Meza. And all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray. Special thanks goes out to Ryan Haas, Elizabeth Miller, and Anna Griffin. Do you have a wild family mystery that you're still trying to figure out? We'd love to hear from you. Are we secretly related? Are you my dad? Tell us about it. Leave us a voicemail at 503-293-1993 or email us at relativefiction at opb.org. If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It really helps people find us. Relative fiction and OPB storytelling and podcasts happen only with the support of our members. Help us make stories like this available to everyone by joining as a sustainer or make a single gift at opb.org pod.